Let me invite you to take your Bibles and go with me back to 1 John chapter 3 this morning. 1 John 3. So studying the text in front of us this week, uh, maybe the strange way my mind works, but uh, I was kind of taken back in my memory a little over 30 years ago to uh, Christmas at my grandma and grandpa Allison's house. Um, it was interesting at Christmas from them. Uh, they always seem to have at least one gift that was educational or scientific or something like that in nature. And uh, one of those came to mind uh, as I was studying this text because of just the illustration that was there. Um, one year, uh, my brother and I opened these little devices that were you know, maybe an inch and a half tall by six inches long by maybe a half inch thick. And uh, you put a couple of batteries in them and looked through them and uh, they magnified everything. It was like a portable microscope kind of thing. Uh, I didn't take the time to try to look it up and see if I'm actually saying that's describing that right. But uh, you'd look through it and could see things with incredible detail up close uh, by looking through this. And so we spent a good portion of the day walking around going, so what does it look like if you look at the table? What does it look like if you look at the floor? And what does it look like if you look at your shirt? And what does it look like if you look at the newspaper? Um, and for whatever reason, what stood out to me the most was looking at different pieces of fabric. Um, again, kind of a trivial thing, I realize, but you'd look at a piece of fabric through that like you would through anything that powerfully magnifies and realize that uh, what seems like a single color or a single garment uh, is made up of all of these, you know, fibers kind of woven together, all of these strings. And if you kept looking, you'd realize that those individual strings were made up of even smaller pieces uh, along the way. And it kind of began to click in my mind why mom was always like, hey, if there's a thread, don't pull it, Right. Um, I recently had one of those experiences with one of my kids. Uh, the carpet was unraveling, and I'm like, no, 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 don't touch that. Because we understand, you know, if you have that loose thread on your garment or that uh, piece of carpet that's starting to come up and you pull it, you're going to do a lot of damage along the way because it is all so interconnected. It is so interwoven that you can't go, well, you know what? If I just grab that little red piece right there, everything else will be fine. Uh, all of a sudden, the picture, the completeness is marred. It's far better to cut it than to pull it. You know, when I was studying the text here that's in front of us from 1 John 3, verse 19, down through verse 24, um, there are really three predominant thoughts that are all interconnected. They're really inseparable. And uh, even I feel like I owe you a little bit of an apology this morning because we're going to get through like one and a half of them, and I'm telling you they're inseparable, um, but we're going to divide them across two weeks and hopefully uh, benefit from the reminder next week of what we covered this week to go, you know what, all three of these, we could maybe use the same illustration of like a, a three-legged stool, like you take one out and the results are catastrophic, the, the picture is marred, we're going to miss the point here. If you remember where we've been before we get to these three interconnected ideas, uh, we've been talking much about what it looks like to be in God's family because right out of the gate in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, we're told, behold, look, see what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. 
I mean, coming out of chapter 2, he's told us, abide in him, remain in him, continue in him. And now he tells you, you're actually in his family. You're a child of God. And so you ought to be striving to live like, to look like, to love like God does. Even when we started our scripture reading this morning, back in verse 10, we were reminded of how starkly John paints this picture to go, here's what the children of God look like, and here's what the children of the devil look like. And in talking about the children of God, there are two predominant thoughts that have come up over and over again. One is you need to obey him or do righteousness or practice the truth, all these different ways of saying you must obey. And then the other thought is you need to love like him. Like if we stand for truth and we strive to obey, but we don't love, we're failing. We're not living like a child of God. On the other hand, if if we seek to love others and just care for them, but we do so devoid of actual obedience to the truth, we're in grave danger as well. Where we most recently left off, though, was saying, look at the perfect illustration of love. Here's what love looks like. Hereby perceive we love because he laid down his life for us. And we spent time last week looking at this idea that God's love is the supreme example. It is the definition, if you will, of what love is. Christ's love for you and for me was voluntary. He chose to do it. It was costly. He gave his life. And it was substitutionary. He did it for us, not for his benefit, but for us. And again, I hope it stands out to you. I hope it's impacted the way that you have thought and lived this week. But if not, I'll remind you again that there in 1 John 3, verse 16, he then turns the corner and says, okay, here's how you know what love is. Here's what God did for you. And we ought also to give token comments about how we care for one another, right? No, it's like he keeps the standard super high. We ought also to lay down our lives for the brethren. You know what? It's going to be voluntary. It's going to be costly. It's going to involve sacrifice. It's going to be substitutionary. You might not get anything in return. That's okay because that's the way we're called to love. And if that was not challenging and convicting enough, we come to those familiar words in verse 18 later on, and he's like, brethren, it's not enough to talk about it. Go, hey, love you, I care for you, I'm praying for you. Those are all good things, but let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And using a modern phrase, we could say, talk is cheap when it comes to love. It's time to show up, to truly love, because that is an indicator that we belong to Jesus, that his grace has transformed us. And so last week we could say, here's what love is defined as for those who are a child of God. But this week we come and see, here's what love then does in the child of God. Or we might say, here's its effect within the child of God. And coming out of, here's the effect that love has or what it does, we see three inseparable, interdependent consequences 
of love. Again, I almost feel like the need for myself, for us, to say every time of proactive love, like sacrificial love, not just like spoken, conceptual, emotional love, but love that does, love that acts. Here's the consequences of that kind of love. In fact, I'll give you all three this week. We'll cover one and a half this week and leave the other one and a half for next week. These three interdependent, inseparable consequences are assurance, confidence, and obedience. We gain assurance of our relationship with God and confidence in our ability to talk to God and motivation for further obedience to God. And we can't separate them out and go, well, I got the assurance part, but I'm not obeying. That doesn't work. Or we can't go, well, you know what? I'm really striving to obey and to do what's right, but I have no assurance. I have no confidence before God. All three are to be together as a result of having received the love of God for us, going out and then loving others. So first, let's look at the idea of assurance. We might state it this way. The selfless actions of love counter the restless emotions of one's heart. The selfless actions of love counter the restless emotions of one's heart. I encourage you to really think that through as we work our way through what the words of the text say, because so often we actually invert this. We talk about love simply in terms of emotion or the way we feel. But here, because we have not just loved in word and in tongue, but in deed and in truth, the selfless actions, not the emotions, not the thoughts, but the selfless actions of love counter the restless emotions of one's heart. Notice with me that this assurance first comes knowledgeably. This assurance first comes knowledgeably. We might say it this way, love informs. Love informs. Coming out of verse 18, my little children, let us not love in word, either in tongue, but in deed and in truth. He says, hereby, because of this, we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Because we haven't just talked about love, but we've shown love, we've done love, we've given love, we've served in love, we've acted. Because of this, we know that we are the truth. That assurance comes knowledgeably. In other words, love informs. Throughout his writing in 1 John, John has been very concerned with these believers knowing that they have fellowship with God. It's an astounding thought. Like, I hope we don't get over it. Remember, right out of the gate is he's like, hey, I'm telling you what we've seen and what we've heard and what our hands have handled of the word of life. He says, these things we're writing to you so that, yeah, you'll have fellowship with us, verse 3, but truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. We're telling you, yeah, we got relationship with one another, but we have a relationship with God. And I'm telling you this so that you'll have the full joy that that relationship should bring. John's been very concerned with the idea that these believers know 
that they're assured of their fellowship with God. So let me just pause at the outset of our time in the text here and say, do you know that you have a relationship with God? A close, fellowshipping relationship where you go, you know what? My sins are forgiven. I'm no longer under God's wrath as a sinner, but I've been reconciled to him, saved by him through Jesus Christ. If you're not sure of that, that's a first step for any of us today. To say, God, I am a sinner. I've disobeyed you. I've lived for me. I deserve your judgment and your wrath. But God, I realize Jesus Christ has died on the cross for my sins. He's risen again. I don't deserve it, but God, thank you. I'm believing on Jesus. That's the first step for any of us. If you haven't done that, today needs to be the day for your salvation. To believe on Jesus Christ alone so that you can say, I have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I have fellowship with him. Again, as assurance of faith then, John proceeds coming out of chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 to say, so if you want to know that you know him, obey him and love him. Obey him and love others. Let me give you a couple examples because we keep hitting this phrase, but I don't know that we've stopped and looked at them along the way. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, we were told, hereby we know that we know him if we Keep his commandments. How do you know that you know? You keep his commandments. You go to 1 John chapter 2, verse 5, just two verses later, right? Whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby we know that we are in him. So here's how you know that you know. You go to 1 John 3, verse 16, where we were last week. Hereby perceive. That we talked about last week. That's our same word for know. Why do they translate it differently? I don't know. The same word. Hereby we know the love of God because he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Our text this morning, 1 John 3, verses 18 and 19. My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and truth. Hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. John is saying, I want you to know that you know that God has loved you because you are obeying him and you are loving others. That aids your assurance knowledgeably. We'll continue on in the weeks ahead and see that the same theme shows up in chapter 3, verse 24, chapter 4, verse 2, chapter 4, verse 6, chapter 4, verse 13. He wants you to know that you know, that you would have the security of assurance. And that comes through receiving God's love and then showing God's love to others. In fact, jumping ahead a little bit, we'll get there eventually. I love 1 John 4, 18 where he says, you know, when you get this in maturity, he uses the word perfect. When you get this in like its fullness, its completion, its perfection, perfect love casts out fear. Why? Because fear has torment. You know what? When you have assurance of relationship, you're not going, man, I'm worried. What if he's angry? What if? It's like, I'm assured. Isn't that a wonderful place to be when insecurity is gone? Because Mature, perfect, complete love is present. He's concerned that they know that they know. The point in our text this morning is selfless, sacrificial love provides assurance. First, knowledgeably, love informs. Secondly, that assurance happens persuasively. Knowledge calms. That assurance happens persuasively. Knowledge calms. 
In other words, once we've gained the knowledgeable assurance that love gives, that knowledge then helps our hearts. Track with me here for a little bit because, again, I sent my wife a text this week, and I'm like, you know, the commentators say this text is like one of the most difficult to interpret. I'm like, great, happy Sunday, right? So I'm afraid we might miss the point that he's making here. He's going, so here's how you know that you know, and usually knowing is something that happens up here, but feeling is something that happens here. And what happens here does not always line up with what happens here. You ever been there? I mean, we've been in the Psalms for quite some time and will be for a few more weeks on Sunday nights. And when you go to the Psalms, you find the psalmist like arguing with himself. That's a little weird until we go, well, yeah, honestly, I've been there too. Where you're like, what I know is different than what I feel. And so the psalmist, like in Psalm 42, is like, soul, why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God. And he's like having a self-talk kind of conversation with himself going, stop being nervous. Just hope in God. Or think about the Apostle Paul, right? In Romans chapter 7, he lays out his struggle and he's like, I want to do what's right, but I don't do what's right. And I don't want to do what's wrong, but I find myself doing that. And he's wrestling with the fact that sometimes what we know does not always line up with what we feel or what we do. And life is best lived if what we know lines up with what we feel, lines up with what we do. They all should work together. And so he started by saying, your assurance comes knowledgeably as love informs you. You're thinking truth. But then secondly, that assurance happens persuasively because that knowledge calms you. It says, okay, hereby we know that we are of the truth, and so we can assure our hearts before him. The word assure to me is a neat study. It's the idea of to persuade or to convince, to set at ease, or to pacify. So he's saying, okay, when you know this truth, because you're loving those around you, tell your heart to calm down. Persuade your heart. It's okay. Like, pacify it. Set it at ease. Go, that's not true. You're not thinking right here. You're not responding right. Because here's the truth. Here's what I know. I have received his love. His grace is working on me, and I am seeking to love others. You see, there is this interesting thought within Scripture that combines knowing and feeling. And so often we have to lean on what we know first to get our feelings to later line up. And so we cling to truths and say, you know what? If you've believed, if you have just believed you're good with God, I love Romans 5.1, right? Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. It does not say, therefore, being justified by getting to church faithfully, because some of us would be in trouble. Should you be at church faithfully? Yeah, you should. Therefore, being justified by giving regularly. Therefore, being justified by speaking kindly. No, it doesn't say that. It tells us, how are you justified? How are you declared right with God? By faith. And so you have peace with God. Incredible truth. 
It's the same kind of truth that Paul, even after he comes out of his struggle in Romans 7, of like, hey, I don't want to do what's wrong, but I'm doing that, says in Romans 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. But you know what gets coupled with that verse? Who walk not after the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Because there's this interconnected relationship of going, yes, salvation is by faith alone. Yes, I need to think rightly about this. But it is aided by our obedience. We're going to get to that one next week. But like, if we don't obey, we'll struggle. 2 Peter 1 makes that clear. If we don't add to our faith all these things, the one who lacks these things, it's either verse 11 or 12 there in 2 Peter 1, the one who lacks these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Because he hasn't grown, he hasn't obeyed, he hasn't followed. Another great example of that is in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, where Paul says, okay, I'm not with you anymore. But here's what I'm telling you, wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now, much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Like, work out my salvation? He's basically saying, just live it out. It's already true. But work at it. Live at it. Because, verse 13, for it is God that worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. God saves me, not me. And my salvation is only by faith. But as I work on it, God keeps working on me, and I am assured, persuaded of my salvation. Love informs my assurance. And then once I have that information, knowledge calms. I go to my heart, and I say, no, calm down. Set at ease. I know that I know. It's okay. He wants us to have assurance persuasively. By the way, it's interesting here at the end of verse 19 that this idea of assuring our hearts, both knowing and assuring our present tense verbs, which kind of implies the idea like we're going to be doing this regularly. Like, I got it nailed down. Well, praise God, things are settled right now. But you ever been to the point where you're like, I thought I had it nailed down? It's like, no, here's how you can be knowing because you are loving. And so you can be assuring your heart, taking your heart in hand and going, no, that's not true. But don't miss, again, the last two words of verse 19, because we probably shouldn't spend a lot of time on them now, but I at least want the thought in your mind. We shall assure our hearts where? Before pastor. No? Like, that doesn't really matter. But what he says there is shocking. And hereby we know that we know and shall assure our hearts before him. You realize being before God is a terrifying thing? We touched that briefly in young adult Sunday school this morning. We are supposed to fear him. Have this reverential awe where it's like, he's incredible and so I want to be with him, but I don't deserve to be here. Right? You just go through scripture again and see the people who meet God and Often, what is their position? They are flat on their face before him. Isaiah 6, like, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Mine eyes have seen the Lord. Like, oh, no. I hope we don't miss that because, you know, we kind of have this casual approach in Christianity that just kind of misses the fact that, like, what the text says here, we have really on our own have 
absolutely no business being involved with. Me? Assuring my heart before God? But he desires that we would have that assurance. It's an amazing, very humbling reality, right? We can think of it this way. I don't know if you've been there. It's been a while since I've been there. I'm kind of glad for that. But I remember when uh, one of my kids would wake up in the middle of the night just terrified. Uh, like we, we had some thunder through the night last night, right? Really was a non-event in our household, okay? But I remember the days where it was an event, right? And so you as a parent are going into the room. It's like, it's okay. It's okay. And you're using your words. You're using your presence, you're using physical contact, like putting your hand on their back, and you're saying, look, I'm not going to leave. I'll stay here. Like, Calm down. It's okay. Be at ease. Because mom is present. Maybe a little less so dad might be present. Sometimes it doesn't carry the same weight. Right? It's okay. The text here is saying, when you've experienced God's love and you're seeking to love others, you can take your heart and go, look, it's okay. Calm down. Be at ease before God. You belong to him. You're in his family. And that knowledge calms. So self selfless sacrificial love provides assurance. First, knowledgeably, love informs. Secondly, persuasively, knowledge calms. And then third, defensively, God overcomes. Ties into what we've already just said, but in verse 20, he's like, if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. There are times where you have to be like, look, what you feel is just wrong. It is. And God's truth is right regardless of what you feel. We do have a tempter who likes to discourage, who likes to plant doubt who likes to make you go, well, maybe you didn't say the right words, and maybe you don't remember the right place, and maybe you're just not good enough, and maybe, and maybe. And we, we need to work through those things. We do need to examine ourselves, but at the end of the day, we lean on God's truth, not on our own performance, not on our own feelings. But to go, you know, have I believed on Jesus Christ alone? Is my heart drawn to love him and obey him because the repeated themes here have been love him and obey him, love him and obey him, love him and obey him, right? I mean, he's already told us, 1 John chapter 1, right out of the gate, if you say that you never sin, you're a liar. But if you walk in darkness, you don't know him. But if you do sin and you confess that sin, he's faithful and just to forgive your sin, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if you sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, to take those truths and go, you know what? I have believed on him. I am striving to obey him. I am confessing sin and asking for cleansing and forgiveness. So you know what? If my heart condemns me, God's greater than my heart. He knows all. He knows what's right which is one of the reasons why we don't go, so how do I feel? But it's what do I know to be true? What has God said? Have I believed what God has said? Again, I, I love that text in Romans 7 because even Apostle Paul is saying, here's what I fear. And he asks that question, who's going to be able to deliver me from the body of this death? Like, he's not going, well, I'll just work harder in God's grace, although that's good. 
He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. Jesus is his hope of salvation. Jesus is the one that he continues to believe on. He has not somehow said, well, I've been saved by faith, but now I need to work it out in what I do. And that'll determine my salvation. It's that Galatians 3 text where I think we referenced in the last couple of weeks where Paul says, this only what I learn of you. Received ye by the Spirit, by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? The answer is clear. It's been by faith. And it's like, so, are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? It's like, no, you're still being changed, helped, assured by the Spirit. In fact, if you look, glance down to verse 24, where we'll get next week. What has he given you to assure you, to remind you? But his Spirit himself indwelling you, helping you, along the way. God is greater than our hearts. And when we seek to live for him and go, you know what? I've believed on him. I've received his love. I'm seeking to love others, not just conceptually, not just mentally, not just verbally, but in deed and in truth. That love provides assurance defensively. I'm obeying God. God knows he's greater than my heart. Again, our consciences are a wonderful gift of God but they have to be calibrated by the truth of his word and obedience to him. The first inseparable, interdependent consequences of proactive love is assurance. Secondly, I want us to briefly touch this one, is confidence. Not only do we have assurance to go, okay, I know that I know him, but I can then move on to confidence. When we come to confidence, we'll say it this way, the relational security of assurance enables prayerful entreaty with boldness. The relational security of assurance enables prayerful entreaty with boldness. I think many of us would know what it's like in the differing nature of relationships where there are people we can go to and go, you know what, I'm not even going to worry if they say no, that's fine, but I can ask this person anything. Just go, hey, I need a favor. Like, things are nuts. I need help. Would you please? And the relationship is such you're not worried about. And then there are other people like, you know, I don't know them really well, and I'm really nervous about this, and I, I, I'm not sure how they're going to respond, and I, I don't even, maybe, maybe I shouldn't ask. You know, when you know that you know him, and you can tell your heart, it's okay. What that then means, the security that that brings goes, go talk to him. Go with boldness. Go with confidence because you have assurance of relationship with him. So in verse 21, beloved, if our heart condemn us not, we've dealt with our heart, then we have confidence towards God. That idea of confidence is a repeated theme for believers in relationship to God. And it, it really should astound us to go, you belong in his presence You have the right and are desired to talk to him and to ask him. I have a feeling, unfortunately, for many of us, it's not even an issue of whether or not we have the right. It's just straight apathy or self-reliance. You know, I got it. I got it, I got it, I got it, I got it, I got it. Until you don't got it. And it's like, well, maybe I'll come back and ask. It's like, no, there ought to be this ongoing opportunity. You know what? I belong here. It's okay. He wants me here because of what he's done for me already. I can have this confidence in coming 
to him. I mean, even, you know, John in uh, chapter 3, verse 21, gets their attention again. Like, we have to do this sometimes as we're working through church to go, hey, listen up, beloved. If your heart does not condemn you, you have confidence before God. Like, stop, think about this. Don't miss this reality. Those who are loved, because your heart isn't condemning you, come confidently and boldly before God. Again, that passage in Romans 5 I referenced earlier, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God, and we have access into this grace wherein we stand. So you have access to God. Or that text in Hebrews 4 or Hebrews 10, like Hebrews 4 says, seeing then that we have a great high priest, Jesus the Son of God, who's passed into the heavens, right? Like you and I have a high priest, Jesus Christ, who's not just like physically here with us, but actually is in God's very presence. He has access to God. He is God. He says, hold fast to our profession, right? Keep on believing. But as part of that, we then go to the familiar words just one verse later in verse 16. What does that look like if you're holding fast to your profession and Jesus is your high priest? He says, come boldly, confidently, before the throne of grace. Go talk to him. It's okay. He'll do the same thing later on in Hebrews chapter 10 where he goes through that whole thing like, hey, the law didn't cut it. It's a shadow of those things that are to come. Every high priest stood daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which could never take away your sins. But this man, speaking of Jesus, hath offered one sacrifice for sins forever, and he sits down at the right hand of the throne of God. I mean, it's amazing stuff going, here's what Jesus did for you. And then he says in verse 19, having therefore boldness, brethren, by a, the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated to us the, through the veil, which is to say his flesh, having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. He goes, look, Jesus is your priest. He gave his blood as your sacrifice. He serves as your priest now within the veil. So because you have that priest, draw near with your heart in full assurance of faith. Like, say, you know what? I can go. I belong. I can do this with a heart that is absolutely full. I don't have to wonder because that's what assurance does. So he's saying here, when you've loved, because God has loved you, it helps you with your assurance. It gives you knowledge it calms you down, and it defends when your heart wants to indict. And on that basis, then, you not only have assurance, you can go with confidence before God to talk to Him in prayer at any time, going, well, I don't feel this way. I do belong here. And so as we close, again, I believe a couple questions and encouragements are in order. Number one, I come back again and ask you if you've experienced the love of God and salvation through Jesus Christ. You know, you know what? I've acknowledged my sin. I believed on Jesus' death and resurrection alone, and I've asked him to save me. That's the foundation. Why we don't get there, we don't have assurance. That's the need if you have not done that today. 
But then secondly, I would ask you, if you have believed on Jesus, are you striving to obey him, but specifically in obedience to love those around you with action? Completely. Not partially, not in a token way, but to do what 1 John 3.16 says and go, hereby perceive we love because he laid down his life for us and I am seeking to lay down my life for others. Because when I love, not just in word and in tongue, but in deed and in truth, I can assure my heart. I can know that I know him. So are you loving those around you sacrificially with action, not just words? If you are, here's the fallout. Number one, you can be assured of your relationship with God. So that number two, you can quiet your heart. So that number three, you can boldly talk to him. Let's pray. God, what a privilege, an astounding truth it is to realize we can come before you. Lord, I fear that we don't think about what it's like to be before you. But in fact, through Jesus Christ, you've given us that wonderful privilege. Lord, for believers who, are, who may be battling with assurance, I pray that you would strengthen their faith, that you do it as they obey you, as they love those around them, that they would be able to assure their hearts. Lord, if there's one here who doesn't know you as Savior, I pray that today, through your Spirit, through the truth of your Word, you make that very clear, that they would believe on Jesus Christ alone and ask him to save, so that they can have assurance of relationship with you. Lord, I pray on those bases then that we would be willing to come before you confidently, not avoiding it because we're living in self-reliance or avoiding it because we just struggle with how we feel or our view of ourselves and our failures, but coming boldly and confidently because you have done the work on our behalf through your Son that gives us access to you. Lord, we thank you for loving us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.